and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David Ziff, Director of the Legal Writing Program and Senior Law Lecturer at the University of Washington School of Law. We will discuss his article, The Worst System of Citation Except for All the Others, a review of the Blue Book, A Uniform System of Citation, which was published in the Journal of Legal Education. So welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I got to say, as you know, I love your review because it is perhaps the most quixotic concept (laughs) for an article I could possibly imagine. I mean, it's like a review of an unreviewable book, most notable for being the fact that everyone loves to hate it. Yes. Um, (laughs) And nonetheless, it's a positive review. Um, So um, yeah, it's just really amusing. Um, so maybe you could, we could, you could start for, for those of our listeners who might be non-lawyers and mm-hmm. there are, there are some out there. Maybe just say a little something about what the blue book is, where it came from and why people have such strong feelings about it. Yeah. Uh, my pleasure. So, um, you know, my, my article doesn't really get into the history of the Blue Book or where it came from. There's a great article uh, in, I think, the Minnesota Law Review by uh, Fred Shapiro and uh, Julie Krishnaswamy that called The Secret History of the Blue Book. Um, and so if people really want to dive into, you know, the the origins at Yale and Harvard in the pre-World War II era, uh, that, that that would be the place for that. But but basically what it is, um, is when lawyers uh, uh, and and uh, law professors and students, when they're writing things about the law, uh, one of the things that's unique about the law is we have all sorts of different authority that we need to cite to and rely on. So there's cases, there's statutes, and those statutes come from all different states, and the cases come from all different states and jurisdictions and different levels of court uh, within those states. And then there are law review articles, and you can cite to newspapers and speeches and even tweets and all sorts of things. And so um, when when people are writing this stuff, they need to have a way to reference it uh, that kind of serves two purposes. One, you got to be able to find it uh, and and uh, find the particular legal opinion or the particular statute. Uh, and secondly, uh, when you're reading it, the the reader needs to be able to tell from the citation um, what is this source, what what is this person citing to. And so, what the blue book is is it's a really long guide. It's, you know, over 500 pages of rules and examples for uh, if you are citing to a source from or from, sorry, from a case or from some piece of law from this kind of source, citing to a case from the Nebraska Supreme Court or a statute uh, uh, from Minnesota, uh, then here's how it should look. Uh, here's where the numbers go. Here's how you abbreviate the the, the source material. Uh, here's how you indicate which section it is. And it just gives you examples. And because there are so many sources of potential information, there are a lot of different rules that tell you how to how to cite to it. And that's basically it. So why then do you think people have such strong feelings about it? Because, I mean, it's almost like a sort of running joke that, you know, everyone loves to hate the blue book, right? Yes, yes. Um, I mean, I think different people have different reasons for for hating it. Um, One of the the kind of hidden uh, purposes or points of my article uh, is that you know, people do hate the blue book. Um, but one thing that people also hate are people who are sticklers for the blue book when they don't need to be. Um, and I think one thing that people don't like is if you're a lawyer or you're a law professor and you're just trying to write something, um, 
you don't want to have to worry about getting every comma in the exact right place. And there are all sorts of people who, you know, are really strict about this period needs to not be italicized or, you know, this abbreviation needs to have a period here instead of having an apostrophe there. And people just don't like to worry about that stuff. If you're a lawyer, you like to think creatively, you like thinking about, uh, the substance of legal problems. And if you're wasting a lot of your time making sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed for this, and, you know, more annoyingly, I think for some folks, if you have to deal with other editors or, you know, uh, especially if you're a, a lawyer and there's some junior associate who's saying, no, it needs to be this way and is correcting all your work and being obnoxious about it, people don't like having to deal with that stuff. And I think that gets uh, taken out on the book. I mean, it's just not fun uh, to go through and site check to make sure every abbreviation and period's in the right place. Uh, yeah. I mean, it does seem like the the ruliness of the blue book appeals to a certain kind of officious quality that yeah. can become all too prevalent among people in our profession. Yeah. And it, it, it definitely is, it's sort of a stand in for things that people tend to dislike about lawyers, the sort of form over substance and the, uh, you know, punctiliousness of just sort of, uh, making things more complicated than they need to be. And I think it's a, it, it's a stand in for those kind of general complaints. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one thing that's kind of interesting about the blue book is that it at least tries to be all things for all people. I mean, different people in different uh, areas of legal practice engage with legal writing and citation by extension in a wide range of different ways from students to courts, to lawyers, to, to law professors. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, how does the blue book try to kind of square all of those different needs? And, you know, to what extent you talk about this to some extent in the article, to what extent do you think that that's prompted some of these like attempts to create alternatives to the blue book? Yeah. There are a lot of different attempts to create different kinds of alternatives. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to bookmark that for, for later, but for the, for the blue book itself, um, there are really two parts. There's the bulk of the blue book. Most of the pages uh, are the very, very specific rules for law review editors, for for law students who are editing um, law reviews or other journals. Uh, and that's what most of the rules are for. And that's the bulk of the rules. And when people tend to complain about the blue book, that it's bloated, that it doesn't make any sense, that it has too many specific rules, they tend to be talking about those hundreds of pages with very, very specific rules that are t- intended for law review editors. Uh, the Blue Book has uh, a little over 20 pages at the beginning called the Blue Pages, which is a short introduction that's meant for uh, practitioners, for people who are writing just a brief or a memo or a letter or things that they're doing in practice. They're not a law review editor. They're not involved in the publication of, of a legal scholarship. Uh, and those separate rules are meant to be simpler. And I, I talk about this a little bit in the piece, but basically there are fewer rules. There are more gaps in the rules. And the blue book itself says, look, here's how you should do it. If you're a practitioner, um, we're only going to take you so far because we know practitioners just want something quick and simple. And if you have a question that goes beyond what we've done here, you have two options. You can do whatever you want, 
Or you can go look at the more complicated uh, law review editor section and fill in that gap with the specific rule we've provided elsewhere. But, you know, if you don't want to waste the time to do that, just do whatever makes sense to you. And as long as you follow these more basic rules, you're good and you're on your way. Um, and I think a lot of the critiques don't really grapple with that. They, they, they sort of, as lawyers, say, I don't want to mess with those more complicated rules uh, without really recognizing that those complicated rules don't apply to them to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you could kind of lay out some of those critiques, how they've found themselves operationalized in attempts to create alternative systems of citation and why you think those alternatives never really caught on the way the blue book did. Yeah. The, the, so one of the, one of the alternatives is the maroon book, which is this, uh, uh, alternative guide from the university of Chicago, um, that's supposed to be simpler and, and easier. And, you know, it's, it's it, it came up as a, a, a response to the blue book because the blue book was too complicated. So that's that's one. Um, and I guess there are a couple of things going on with the the maroon book. One of them is, in some ways, it's just different. Um, and that's one kind of critique. There are people who don't like the blue book, uh, and they'll say, "Well, it's too complicated. Uh, I don't want to have to worry about it." And then what they're really saying is, they don't. It's not that it's too complicated. It's that they want a different rule. They they want. Uh, uh, to not put a period after the V uh, instead of putting a period after the V, uh, which really to me seems arbitrary and doesn't make much sense, but they like it better. Um, and so things like that are, are partially what the what the Maroon book does. And then also the Maroon book just doesn't have a lot of the material that the Blue book has. So it's simpler and it's more streamlined, uh, mainly because uh, at least the last time I checked, it doesn't have a lot of information about international sources. It doesn't have uh, as much uh, uh, specific information about about uh, 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 state sources and intermediate sources like that. Um, so it's just easier. It's shorter. Um, you can get it online in some places. So, uh, that's, that, that's sort of one, uh, uh, alternative. Um, another one was, uh, uh, from the association of legal writing directors, which is the Allwood guide, um, which is less about making it simpler. Uh, the, the Allwood guide is actually longer and it has pretty much the same rules as the blue book, but the blue book is a reference guide. Uh, and if you try to learn how to cite something or understand the purpose behind citation form or why someone would cite a source a particular way, the blue book's not going to help you with that. The blue book's like, you know, trying to learn the language and how to speak by reading a dictionary. Uh, uh, and so Allwood says, you know, look, we are a bunch of legal writing uh, uh, professors where we are good at teaching this stuff. Uh, so we're going to put together this information in a more user friendly way with more examples, more explanations. Um, so that's sort of one uh, uh, another kind of competitor. Um, and then the most recent competitor, and I talk about this a little bit in the piece, uh, is the Indigo book, which has uh, uh the exact same rules as the blue book. Um, but their complaint about the blue book is that it's uh, a private publication put out by these Ivy league law schools that you have to pay money for, and it's not freely available online. Um, and they claim uh, copyright protection in their, in their, uh, explanations for things. Um, and it costs students money. I mean, I, uh, I think the most recent version is almost $40. Uh, and they think, you know, if you're involved in talking about the law, that's a public good that should be free. And so you can just search for the Indigo book online and it has all the same rules uh, freely available uh, on the Internet. And so th those are sort of different ways that people go about it. Um, uh, I could talk about about Judge Posner's guide, uh, too, but that's sort of a different animal. He, he's come up with his own his own thing. I don't know if you if you I don't know if your <laughs> listeners would be interested in that. 
Sure. Yeah. Everyone's always interested in Justice Posner, you know, the, the, the judge who's always doing his own thing. Yeah. He, um, so Judge Posner, uh, a former uh, judge uh, on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, is one of the Blue Book's most famous critics. He really, really dislikes it. He doesn't like uh, all the rules. He thinks it's silly. He thinks it's inefficient. And he's written uh, a couple of articles. Every book that he writes has some um, shot at the Blue Book. Uh, and and he really, really doesn't like it. And he's very proud that in his chambers, when he was a judge, he had, you know, depending on the format, you know, and the, the, the spacing, it was something like a five-page citation guide. Um, and he very proudly would say, um, this is the only citation guide that I need. I don't need those uh, 500 plus pages in the blue book. And and I think that, that Judge Posner's critique and his uh, celebration of his five-page guide is really um, – it it exemplifies the the sort of critique that I'm trying to f- uh, push back against in my review, which is his five page guide is not a complete citation guide. If you are a lawyer or a law review editor, um, and even you want the simplest rules possible, his guide is not going to help you because what it is is it's a supplement. Um, and I say in the piece that sort of the unstated rule uh, that Judge Posner has in all of his critiques is is to first learn all the blue book rules and then just do it a slightly different way that Judge Posner thinks is simpler. Um, and so uh, uh, you need some sort of baseline level of uh, guidance to actually create a meaningful legal citation. And I think especially practicing lawyers and judges, um, they're so far away from being first-year students or law students and learning this for the first time that they think it really should be much simpler. But Thinking about, you know, how do you indicate what court a certain opinion comes from or what a statute is? It's complicated. There's going to be a certain uh, level of complexity that's that's unavoidable. Uh, and, you know, Judge Posner tries to wish that away a little bit with his with his five page guide. Um, but that's that, that guide can't really do all the work that you need to do to to, to have a, a meaningful and useful citation to legal authority. So one of the things I really liked about your review was the way you use the debate over the blue book, but really over the kind of concept and practice of citation mm-hmm. more, more generally as like a particular instantiation of this long standing debate in the law about, you know, rules versus standards. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, I was wondering if you could talk about the rules versus standard debate in the citation context and how you think it has in practice played out in terms of the kind of longevity of the blue book. Mm-hmm. And the failure of alternatives to really catch on. Yeah, I mean, so so one of the things uh, that you know, each edition of the blue book tends to get longer, um, and I think part of that is if you're a law review editor, you are editing and reviewing and writing so many pieces of scholarship, and those pieces of scholarship have so many sources and so many footnotes that the rules, and I'll just use the word rule here, that the the rules uh, for citation. Um, you end up using them so much uh, that you you need a lot of guidance. Um, that the question of how do I do this comes up all the time. Uh, and so what what I do in the piece is I look and I say, okay, um, if you're if you're trying to make decisions about things and and how to cite a legal authority is a thing that you need to make a decision about whether you like it or not. Um, you can either use a rule. 
uh, or a standard to to make that decision. Um, and a standard uh, is more vague. Uh, it gives more discretion to the decision maker at the time. Uh, and basically, that means every time you come up with uh, or you come across a citation, uh, you might have a general standard that says, cite this reasonably in a way that makes sense and can be found by a reader. Um, and that's fine. That's a good standard. Uh, but then you have to go through the w- work of implementing that each time you have a, a legal source. Um, and if you're citing to tens of thousands of footnotes or you're checking tens of thousands of footnotes every year and you have 40 people on staff and they're all making these decisions, at some point, even though it's completely arbitrary, uh, it's going to save you time just to say, look, I know it doesn't matter, but here's how we're going to abbreviate this term. Here's how we're going to use uh, 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 ca- uh, the names of the parties to make the case name. Here's where the date's going to go. Uh, and that's it. And, you know, we can argue about whether or not a different way would be better. Um, but it's easier just to have it decided ra- rather than to have it, you know, uh, debated over and over again. And so over time, uh, the, what I found is you start trying to cite these things and you start trying to edit a volume of a, of a law review. And the more these questions come up, the more you just want to resolve them because you, you're sick of having to, to figure it out each time. Um, and each time you resolve it and you say, look, we're just going to do it this way in the future, you come up with a different rule. And so in these sort of complex systems where you have so many decisions that need to get made over and over again, um, that's the sort of system where rules uh, are helpful and are actually more efficient than having 40 individual staffers working on, you know, 20 to 30 pieces, each individually coming up with their own best idea. Um, and then, uh, because you want to have a consistent uh, decision in each piece, uh, or maybe in each book that you're publishing, having uh, the need to reconcile each of those independent decisions to come up with what the best one is across the board. So, um, so you know, standards work really well if you are a lawyer and you're filing one brief and you're the one writing it, and when you write it and, it outs the, and it's out the door, you're done and you could do a different standard uh, or your citations could look differently in the next brief because the judge doesn't care and isn't going to know. Um, in that sort of situation uh, uh, where there's fewer decisions that need to get made, who cares? You're not going to need to memorize some 500-page book. Just make it look nice, uh, make sure the judge can find it, and go on from there. Um, but uh, uh, for something that's more involved and more complex, uh, it helps to have rules and you save time. Yeah, so th- there is a, a certain irony to this, though, in a sense that, you know, for practitioners, it's a situation where the the information communicated by the citation is not merely information about how to locate the source mm-hmm. or you know, kind of identifying the source, um, but also kind of the power or force or, or, you know, kind of precedential value of the source. Um, and, and yet for practitioners, the rules, as you've said earlier, are, are relatively simple. I mean, the blue book rules for practitioners are not, you know, not terribly extensive and that there is a fair amount of discretion for practitioners in terms of how they cite. Whereas for, for legal scholars like, like ourselves, um, where, you know, I guess finding the sources is important, although I question how many <laughs> how many people ever actually follow the vast number of citations included in your your typical law mm-hmm. review. Um, th- that that kind of precedential value doesn't seem to be there 
right? <laughs> At least not in the same way that it is for practitioners. So th- there's a certain kind of irony that so much of the book is devoted to um, kind of perfecting the art of citation <laughs> where <laughs> it doesn't necessarily um, matter as much in a kind of normative or in a, in a, in a functional sense. And, 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 you know, reading, rereading your review, I couldn't help but wonder to what extent maybe some of the, um, some of the bad feelings that people have toward the, some of the resentment, frankly, <laughs> that, that many people feel toward the blue book reflects a resentment toward what the blue book stands for. Right, like the kind of the excessiveness of the the citation fetish of the law review, for example. Like it's, I don't really mind how you cite it. It's like what I really hate is that there's so many of them, you know, <laughs> and that the blue book just becomes like the, a constant reminder of you know that citation fetish. I totally agree with that. So, so the first thing I want to say is you, your point about authority and it mattering more for practitioners than it does for. Uh, 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 academics who are writing uh, to a to a to a general audience or not to a court. Um, you and your listeners, if if you and they haven't already, should read Alexa Chu's piece. Uh, she's a legal writing professor at, at University of North Carolina uh, called "Citation Literacy," and she really addresses how citations in the law work and how for lawyers, particularly practicing lawyers who are writing to judges or to other lawyers, the citation itself needs to have an expressive function uh, about the authority of the source. Um, and the, the biggest way that that plays out, uh, which is a whole nother debate uh, in legal writing, is whether or not citation should go above the line in the text or whether they should go in the footnotes. Um, and by putting them above the line in the text, they muddy things up. It makes the, everything look ugly. Uh, Brian Garner really hates it because it doesn't make the prose flow as well. Um, but then you have to look down below the line to a footnote. So if there's a point of law in the sentence and you see some statement of the law and there's a footnote there, you need to look down to see, is that a statement from the uh, Supreme Court of the jurisdiction in which I'm practicing? Is that a statement to a secondary source that that's purporting to summarize the law of the jurisdiction in which I'm practicing? Is that some uh, uh, thing that's a CEG, the restatement and some case from Delaware? And I'm practicing. So you need to look down to see that. And, and, and that's why, for the reasons you said, and that, that uh, uh, Alexa Chu's piece gets into, um, uh, uh, lawyers have it above the, above the line. Uh, your second point, I totally agree with you, is that so much of the, the dislike of the blue book is not so much about how to cite things, but that you have to do it so much. Uh, and I say this a little bit in the piece, and, and I've talked about it elsewhere, um, that that's not really the blue book's fault. I mean, the, the, if, if law professors want to write things that don't have as many footnotes, uh, then there are ways to do that by, you know, talking to their own law reviews, talking to law review editors, talking uh, maybe more importantly to the promotion and tenure committees on their own faculty and saying, look, uh, I don't want to write a, a 65, 70 page, uh, 500 footnoted article in a law review. Instead, I want to write a couple of essays and a few blog posts that are more lightly uh, cited or more lightly footnoted. Uh, is that going to be OK? Can I do that? Uh, and if the P&T committee comes back and says, sure. Then great. Um, if the PNT committee comes back and says no, we want you to do a big, you know, four hundred footnote article, uh, then you got to deal with that. But you know, the editors of the blue book they sort of take that as uh, 
uh, all that stuff is exogenous. And they're like, look, given that we are editing all this stuff, um, might as well make it as easy as it can uh, for us. And that means more rules. So uh, the 3L editors don't have to keep responding to 2L saying, how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? Just tell them to do what it says in the book and then be done with your assignment. Yeah. I mean, there is an irony or almost hypocrisy in that, you know, law professors love to complain about so many of these kind of law review practices surrounding citation practice and expectations. And yet we're the ones who are telling the students what to expect and perpetuating those same kinds of practices. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're the ones that are in charge of this whole enterprise. And so, you know, so much vitriol I hear uh, uh, from peers and online uh, about the blue book and about, you know, two L law review editors. And it's sort of, it makes me question, wait, who's, who's, actually in control here can't, can't we do what we want uh and it seems like people just don't like to take the responsibility or there's people who are just upset and it's easy to say i hate the blue book uh it's easier to do that than to uh, propose an amendment to your own school's promotion and tenure policies yeah okay well so really no one i know has thought about the blue book as much or as deeply as as you have so I, I feel like i feel like i would be remiss if we didn't get into the weeds at least for a minute yeah yeah um, sure to, to the to the technical stuff so i was wondering two two things I, I was hoping you could reflect on number one like if you could change any small number of things about the blue book what would it be and number two Right. What do you see or what do you, what would your prediction be going forward as to how citation practice as reflected in the blue book might might change? Um, yeah, those are those are very interesting questions. Um, so for the for the changes, m- most of my thoughts on how to change the blue book really just focus on the rules for practitioners um, for the for the law review editor rules, the really complicated ones. Um I don't. I don't particularly care. I think the, that area of of uh, of law review editor rules, those hundreds of pages that are that are very very specific, um, those all to me seem really really arbitrary. And that's just a matter of the editor saying we want there to be some rule. And so if if it's easier for them, um, and they can of course follow or not follow or adopt or, or amend anything they want, um, I don't particularly care. Uh, uh, and so, you know, it d- doesn't matter to me. So most of my changes are, are about what practitioners should do. And my number one change that I would make would be uh, for citations to the United States code uh, or state codes to the extent that state codes have this rule. Um, the blue book requires the date of publication of the code volume. Um, and that the idea behind that is that is that you're citing to the book so it's like a it's like the 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 collection of statutes is a code book and you want to cite uh the date on the spine of that book to show when it was published um and that just doesn't make any sense for lawyers who don't really care about the date the book was published they're not getting it out of the book they're going on Westlaw or Lexis or maybe their state's website um and just pulling up whatever law is currently in force uh and so for laws currently in force don't treat it like a book treat it like uh uh just the law and drop that date. Cause it's one of those rules that no one follows and it's unhelpful. Uh, and so I'd say just, just cut it. That's, that's 
the the number one one because I don't like teaching it. I certainly don't like teaching it. Um, <laughs> the other one for practitioners, and this is one of the things that people people hate and they love to complain about, are all the abbreviations in case names that like environmental. Uh, how does how does environmental get abbreviated? Is it E N V? period is it envmt apostrophe l or whatever env so i don't particularly care i understand if you're a law review editor and you're citing to a case that has the word environmental in it 35 times that you want it to be consistent so it it's helpful to have an answer for a law review editor um and the blue book has a bunch of tables that say here's how you you know need to abbreviate these things um you know i know a lot of courts and a lot of people say, follow the blue book, that you need to follow these rules. And so I have an interest in making those rules as reasonable as possible for lawyers. Uh, And so I'd like to make all those abbreviations optional. Uh, I think it's sort of silly for a for a court that says to their lawyers, it is the local rules of this court that you need to follow the blue book. Uh, And then if that includes the blue book specific abbreviation for a bunch of different words that they need to use in case citations. Uh, it seems odd to me that a lawyer would be violating the local rules of a court if they abbreviated environmental wrong. Um, so I just like that to be to be optional. Um, those are my big ones, uh, which just are ways of making it, you know, uh, easier and, and a little more rational for practitioners and also just reflect more what practitioners uh, tend to do. It's nice when the rules follow what the actual practice is. Um, for what happens in the future, I really have no idea. And I think the the thing that's gonna gonna drive what happens in the future has more to do with how we store uh, and publish legal materials. Um, you know, so much of the blue book rules citing to to cases particularly, and also to secondary sources, is based on the idea that a lot of this stuff is not permanent. That there's no permanent stable. Uh, web link, uh, and that so therefore you need to cite to some West-based publication that's uh, the federal reporter that's down in the basement collecting dust uh, in the library, uh, uh, or uh, numbers that you can punch into Westlaw and it'll pull it up. Um, and those numbers, it'd be nice if we could get rid of those and just click on a link and go directly to the case. Um, but because currently uh, those uh, case reporters are not online, they're not stable. Uh, they're not archived and Westlaw and Lexis, uh, are not free. Uh, and so it's not fair in a public document to require litigants or, or the public to have access to those things. We're really stuck with, um, all those long numbers and database identifiers. Uh, and so it'd be nice to get rid of those, but that's not going to happen until, uh, states, uh, and the federal government make permanent, uh, and official, links to the actual substantive law available to everyone. So that that would be my prediction. Yeah. And 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 that really kind of tracks something that I've noticed a lot in kind of legal practice scholarship and citation, the way we seem to be in this kind of almost like limbo or liminal period between books and, and, and virtual Mm -hmm. like data driven data-driven spaces. I mean, like, you know, in what other context do you still see, you know, law journals being, or journals being published as, as physical things, right. you know? Um, and that still seems to kind of drive the understanding of the identification of a particular source. I mean, we still conceptualize many things as physical, even when nobody actually uses the physical mm-hmm. sources. You know, I mean, like, I know that, like, when I went to law school, 
for example, in the early 2000s, there was this insistence on everybody still, you know, going to the books and figuring out how to cite from the books or shepherdize mm-hmm. from from the books. And it's my impression that that has diminished, or if not, gone away in entirely. And you know, law schools are getting rid of the physical books left and right, and yet we still conceptualize so much of the identification of particular sources in this kind of quasi-physical fashion. Yeah. I mean, part of that relates also, I think, to what is the official source of the law that we're citing? And, um, you know, I, I, I remember as a law review editor uh, getting into disagreements with authors uh, when they had a quote and we kept correcting it and sending it back and they kept uncorrecting it and sending it back. And we had a back and forth and they sent us a thing. It's like, here's what it says. They were pulling it from Westlaw uh, and we had the actual official reporter. Um, and so there are differences between uh, some of those paper sources and, you know, uh, uh, some some Westlaw sources or some online sources. And this comes up with the Supreme Court. I mean, uh, this was something a few years ago, and I forget the particular article, where the Supreme Court would post an opinion in PDF online on their website. And you might think, OK, I'm just going to cite to that. That is the law. Uh, but then a few weeks later, a footnote would get changed without uh, notice. Uh, and maybe it did or didn't change the holding of the case or, you know, who who knows? Uh, and then there'd be another little change and another little correction here. And then eventually it goes into the, the U.S. Uh, reporter, the official reporter. Um, and so, you know, it does matter which version you're citing to because there are differences. Um, so that's never going to that's never going to end. Um, and with the link and with the, the, the paper versus, you know, how are the citations going to look? Um, because we, we are so focused on, uh, uh, you know, a particular source. I was just thinking uh before uh, we started this this chat about one of your recent episodes with with Oren Kerr, um, and you know I could imagine a future where a, a law review article that we're reading online or a PDF that a judge gets just has a, a a sentence that says something about the Fourth Amendment or something about Professor Kerr has argued something, and maybe there's just a link, and so you know that Professor Kerr has argued something, and that is indicated in the the text, and there's a link, and so you know there's authority to it, but you have to click through to find out whether or not that is to an amicus brief that he's written, a law review article that he's written, a blog post that he's written on the Vala conspiracy, or something that he's done in a tweet thread. And I think even though those are all things that that he's said, um, if I'm a court or even maybe if I'm a reader of a law review that's talking about uh, this issue, I kind of want to know where did he say it? it I, I'm going to treat that point differently if it's from a tweet versus a blog versus an amicus brief versus a law review article. Uh, and so you still need some sort of citation form to indicate the the authority uh, and the the actual, whether or not it's physical or internet or, you know, somewhere, whatever the source is, that needs to be a part of the citation for the for the reader to get a meaningful sense of how to treat this claim. And, and that's something that Alexa Chu talks about in her citation literacy piece. So, Dave, it's been really great talking to you about this <laughs> amazingly uh, unusual yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, sub- subject. And in, in closing, I was I was wondering if you could like if we could bring it back to the Indigo book and sort of the the motivations for the Indigo book, which we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about earlier. But I was kind of wondering if you could reflect on what it what what it was intended to communicate because my sense is that like you said there's like this this way in which the indigo book 
and similar moves in other, you know, in other contexts reflect a way in which people object to the kind of the ownership (laughs) and control of the blue book by a small number of, 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 of kind of prestigious law schools. And I I was wondering if you could reflect on their custodianship of our uniform method of legal citation. I mean, if you could have your druthers Mm -hmm. about that, is there anything you would change or any advice you would give? Yeah. I mean, so, so the idea with the Indigo book was uh, uh, some lawyers wanted access to the the Blue Book online and some of those rules because they wanted to create an automated uh, citation tool that sort of took from the Blue Book's rules uh, and then uh, was able to create citations from it. And the Blue Book editors, the folks at at Harvard, uh, said, no, you can't do that. That's our intellectual property. We're not going to let you use your online access for that. Uh, And so there was some uh, legal wrangling back and forth, and then and then finally the the Indigo Book folks um, said, uh, "Well, we'll just put together our own thing, uh, make it a, a free. I, I believe it's under the Creative Commons license, um, but I'm not sure. Um, but some sort of basically freely usable online source, and then anyone who wants to create uh, apps or web tools or anything can just use our version, uh, and you'll get Blue Book compatible citations. So so that was their goal there. Um, the idea of of Columbia, Harvard, Penn, and Yale. Those are the, that's the consortium of schools that do this, uh, that controls it. I think, you know, there are two kind of possible problems there. One is they're charging money for it. They're making money off the print. Uh, and all those schools have plenty of money. Uh, and so uh, there's a good argument to be made that they should just do the work, get the credit for it on their resume, uh, and then make it freely available to everyone online and not have it be an income source. And I'm, I'm pretty strongly in, in favor of, of that. I, I went to Columbia. I was uh, one of the editors on the law review that was involved with, you know, making sure all the blue booking was right. We, we had plenty of money. Um, and so I, I don't think we need any more money and Harvard had more money. So it, uh, everyone's fine. Um, on the who controls the actual rules, I think some of this is, is historical where there's a previous version of the blue book that was just purely done by students uh, without any outside input. And they made changes and everyone, practitioners, uh, law professors, uh, everyone hated the changes. And they thought, who are these students? They're totally off the rails. Uh, And in response to that, uh, more recent additions, uh, even when I was in law school, when the updates were happening, and certainly now, the people who are in charge, the students who are in charge of managing the process, they get input from the Library of Congress, from uh, legal writing professors, from librarians, uh, from folks all over the place. To uh, They get input from lawyers and professors, and they have surveys. Uh, and so they've taken on less of a we know what's best because we're the law review editors from uh, Columbia, Harvard, Penn, and Yale. Uh, less of that attitude and more of the we're in charge of managing this process with input from a lot of important stakeholders. And I think that leads to a a, a better process than than maybe we had in the past. Um, and so I hope you know the 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 new edition will be coming out uh, in 2020. Um, and we'll see we'll see then what improvements they've made for different internet sources and making things simpler maybe for practitioners. But I guess we'll find out when we find out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, David. It's been a real pleasure talking. to Thank you. Thank you, and thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Always happy to talk about the Blue Book. Ronald? 
McDonald was sitting at a table with papers all around him. He was reading some of the papers and writing on some of them when his friend the professor came up to him holding something covered by a red cloth. Good morning, Ronald. Oh, hello, professor. I didn't see you come up. I'm busy getting ready for the new McDonaldland show. It's going to be great. We're going to have daredevil acts, jokes, juggling, all kinds of things. Uh, what about music? Well, so far everybody wants to be on the stage, not the band. Good. That's where I can help, Ronald. Great. What instrument do you play, Professor? I don't play any instrument, Ronald. I just wanted you to use my newest invention. Is that it there? Yes. This is my music machine. A machine that makes music? Not any old music. Every kind of music. That's terrific, Professor. So no matter what kind of music we need, that machine can give it to us? Right, Ronald. It's got a computer inside. So if you want to hear happy music, you push this button here. If you want exciting music, this is the button. Whatever kind of music you want, there's a button. That's terrific, Professor. Could we use it in our show? Oh, I was hoping you would, Ronald. But I'd have to work it, of course. Oh, naturally. Oh, this is going to be a great show. The day for the new McDonaldland show soon came. Everybody was ready. Ronald and all his friends had been practicing for weeks. The professor had set up his music machine behind the curtain and was making last-minute adjustments. Then the spotlight came on, and Mayor McCheese walked on stage. Opening music, Professor. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the McDonaldland show. We got lots of exciting stuff for you, don't you know? So to get the show started, here's Ronald McDonald and his amazing juggling act. Juggling music, Professor. Right. Thank you. Thank you. You've seen people juggling five or six balls, but here's 12, 25, 37. 37 balls and five chairs! While Ronald was on stage with his juggling act, his big purple friend Grimace wandered over by the professor, who was busy with his music machine. Uh, hi, professor. What you got there? Uh, hello, Grimace. Uh, this is my music machine. Uh, wow! I bet it plays music, huh? Oh, that's right, Grimace. Uh Oh, my goodness. I just remembered something. I forgot to turn off the water in my bathtub at home. Oh, land sakes. Whatever should I do? The turn it off? Right, Grimace. Good idea. I must rush home and turn off the water before my house floats away. At the Here, you work my music machine. But how? It's easy. Just push the buttons. Uh, okay. With that, the professor ran off home. Thank you, thank you. And now, Bertie the early bird will ride a bicycle on the high wire. Dramatic music, please. The I wish Ronald could see me. <laughs> I guess I'll push this button. There goes Bertie on the high wire. Backwards. Wait a, wait a minute, that's not the right music. Bertie's done and gracefully lands in the safety net. Next, the masters of funny business... It's the captain and his parrot. Uh, thank you, thank you. Ah, I bet everybody thinks I'm sitting on your shoulder. So? Ah, they don't realize I'm really holding you up. Button your beak, you balmy ah, bird. Funny music. Knock, knock. Who's there? Hotch. Hotch who? Gesundheit. This isn't funny music. Something funny is going on here. Boy, <laughs> this music machine is fun. <laughs> Look at all these buttons. Uh, what goes 99 clump? 99 clump. Ah, a centipede with a wooden leg. 
We present now Hamburglar, reading a poem entitled Charge of the Light Brigade. Bravo, bravo, poetry bravo, music. Bravo, That's not poetry bravo, music. Bravo, What's the professor bravo, trying to do? Ronald finally looked in back of the curtain, and there was Grimace working the music machine. Grimace! Oh, Ronald, help! The professor's not here, and his machine is out of control. It's rumbling and shaking like it's going to explode. Get away, Grimace! I've got an idea. Get everybody in the middle of the stage. Signal, you light these fireworks. Aye, aye, Ronald. Ladies and gentlemen, the grand finale to our show! Okay, Captain. Well, gang, looks like our show was a success after all. Ronald, I'm sorry I'm late. Uh, how was the music? It was a real blast, Professor. <laughs> 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 <laughs>